So it seems to me the main problem we have in the church is that most Christians have an improper view of love and therefore an improper view of marriage. In fact, I believe the real satisfaction in marriage comes from loving your unlovable spouse to the same depth that God loves you. Welcome to the Fox Den with Terry Fox. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the Fox Den. In this episode, I want to talk about the purpose of marriage. And let me begin by saying I believe we have a distorted view of love in the United States. Unfortunately, we've learned this improper version of love through Disney and Hollywood. We've been taught that being in love means that your heart skips when you look at that certain someone. And we've been conditioned to think this way. After all, even Thumper in the Disney movie Bambi was Twitterpated. However, I believe this is faulty thinking. Hollywood and the American culture at large have taught us that love is no more than an emotional response to someone. But this isn't love. This is infatuation. And I believe this is dangerous when looking for a spouse. Concerning marriage, I believe this has caused more problems in the church than we might think. For example, what do you do when the love is gone? When your heart no longer skips when your spouse walks in the room? Unfortunately, I believe the divorce rate among Christians is equally as high as the rest of the culture. When you establish your marriage on Twitter patient, your marriage is built on a weak foundation. It's built on emotion. So with this in mind, I believe we also have a distorted view of marriage in the United States. People enter marriage based on the emotional response the other person invokes. So we've made marriage about our happiness. I've heard people say things like, I'm no longer in love with her. Who cares? You made a promise to your spouse before God, the minister, and the public. Does your word mean nothing? Now, as I say this, I realize that there are some people in some really bad marriages. And I'm not talking about marriages that make you really unhappy. I mean, there are some people who are being abused by their spouses. And this episode is not intended to offer guidance to those in such circumstances. In fact, I don't think a podcast can adequately deal with issues like this. The point that I'm making here is to the person who is no longer Twitterpated with his or her spouse. Just because that person no longer has feelings for their spouse, they have no right to divorce their spouse. So it seems to me the main problem we have in the church is that most Christians have an improper view of love and therefore an improper view of marriage. Now, I'm not suggesting that your marriage should be lifeless or burdensome. Certainly, there should be joy in your marriage. For example, Song of Solomon seems to be a love letter from Solomon to his bride. In fact, I believe the real satisfaction in marriage comes from loving your unlovable spouse to the same depth that God loves you. There's something important that we have to remember. Nowhere in the Bible do we find that marriage is for your happiness. And as you're going to see in a moment, marriage has a much grander purpose. And when you understand that purpose, you will see that divorce is not an option. And for those who are seeking marriage, I think this will give you something to think about before you enter marriage. Though I've never read his book, several years ago, Gary Thomas published a book titled Sacred Marriage. But it's the subtitle that I think is worth noting. The full title is Sacred Marriage, What If God Designed Marriage to Make Us Holy?, more than to make us happy. Now, as we go through this episode, you'll find that marriage is much more than making you holy. However, I completely agree with Thomas that marriage is not really about your happiness. 
Before we look at the purpose of marriage, let's define love. Love is not an emotional response to someone. Love considers the greatest good of the other. Do you see the selfless nature of love? It's not seeking its own gain. It seeks to make sure the other is elevated, that the other is taken care of. And this makes sense when you look at love through the eyes of God. Jesus sacrificed himself to save those whom the Father gave him. Take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4-7. through Here, Paul defines love. He tells us that it's patient and kind. It doesn't envy or boast. It's not arrogant. It's not rude. It doesn't insist in its own way. Love is selfless and considers the greatest good of the other. So what is the purpose of marriage? Well, first, marriage was instituted by God. It's not some archaic institution developed by religions. Take a look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. And keep in mind, this is before Adam sinned. This is before the fall of mankind. So marriage isn't a response to the fall. It was part of God's plan before the fall. And in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, God told Adam that a man shall leave his father and mother, and he shall hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So marriage was instituted by God before the fall. Next, God clearly instituted marriage for procreation. When God created Adam and Eve, he said to them to be fruitful and multiply. We see that in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. And furthermore, when God instituted marriage, he said the man and the woman would become one flesh. The birth of a child is the confirmation of this union, but it's more than that. In marriage, my wife and I are united. And by this, I don't mean we're in agreement on how to manage our family. God has joined us together so we are one. As I record this episode, we are physically separated. I'm upstairs, she's downstairs. However, God has united us together so we're really one. And this is the reason why divorce is unbiblical under most circumstances. In Matthew chapter 19, a Pharisee asked Jesus about divorce, and he responded by saying, let no man separate what God has joined together. He says that in verse 6. Again, in marriage, God united a man and his wife. And notice that Jesus didn't say that no man should separate what God joined together. The verb that Jesus uses in the original language is an imperative. And an imperative in the original language is a command. He's saying, no kidding, let no man separate what God has joined together. It's a command, not an option. And if a person divorces his wife and remarries, he commits adultery, according to Jesus in Matthew chapter 19, verse 9. And the only exception that Jesus gives is sexual immorality. Because God united a man and his wife, no person is permitted to divorce his or her spouse. Now, I'm not going to go in depth on divorce in this episode, but what I want you to see is why you don't have the freedom to divorce. God united a man and his wife. But we're going to see in a little bit that there's a more significant reason why divorce is unbiblical. And in order to do that, we need to go to Ephesians chapter 5. And according to verses 22 to 24, wives are to submit to their husbands. Now, what does it mean to submit? This is a very unpopular word. Wives don't want to submit to their husbands. The word in the original language means to put yourself under the authority or dominion of another. So wives are to subject themselves or put themselves under the authority of their husbands. 
So the first thing to notice here is that a wife is a co-equal with her husband. Notice she is to submit to him. That implies that she's equal, yet she is to submit to his authority. This doesn't mean that a husband is greater. He's not. And he's not more important. The husband has a different role. All the weight of the responsibility falls on him. So the wife is a co-equal to her husband, yet she submits herself to him. She willingly and humbly submits to his authority. The husband has a God-given responsibility to oversee his family, and the wife submits herself to that authority. Is this because he's greater than his wife or more important than she is? I've already answered this. He's not greater nor more important. She is his co-equal. But she does so first because God has given him a responsibility. But you see, she has an even more important role to play. And I don't mean doing laundry, feeding the children, getting her husband's dinner on the table. Her role is far more important than that. You see, a wife paints a picture to the world, to her children, to her husband, and to herself. Look at verse 24. She submits herself or subjects herself or puts herself under the authority of her husband as the church submits to Christ. Do you see it? She's painting a picture. She's painting a picture of Christ and his church. Her responsibility is to paint this picture of the church submitting to Christ. Now, I want you to see something else. Do you see that it's not really about her being her husband's slave? She's not submitting herself to his authority to be a servant. Wives are co-equal with their husbands, and they help him fulfill his responsibility. Remember, all the weight of responsibility falls on him. And she helps him fulfill that responsibility. Let's take a look at the creation of woman in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis chapter 2, we see that God created Eve from Adam. And then from this point on, children are born from their mothers. But Eve was created from Adam. Now you might think, well, that's just some mythical story with perhaps some moral lesson. Well, the Apostle Paul didn't think so. Take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 8. Paul says that a woman was made from man and she was made for man. Paul believes the creation story of Eve from Adam is real. Now, going back to Genesis chapter 2, what does verse 18 say? God said that it's not good for man to be alone. Did God mean simply companionship? Well, I don't think so. Look at what God says at the end of verse 18. God is going to make a helper for Adam. So it seems a wife's role is to help her husband fulfill his responsibility. Again, I'm not saying that there should be no joy in your marriage. Certainly there should be. But marriage has a far greater role than your happiness. Now, for any wife out there who is listening, don't think that you're being minimized as a helper. Don't think that this is some trivial task that you're pushed to the side and unimportant. God is called a helper on several occasions. For example, take a look at Hebrews chapter 13, verse 6. There, the writer of Hebrews translates Psalm 118, verses 6 and 7. And there he says that the Lord is my helper. The Greek word used in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 6, is the same Greek word used in Genesis 2, 18. You see, you're in good company. You are your husband's helper as God is your helper. Now, perhaps you're saying, Terry, the Old Testament wasn't written in Greek. It was written in Hebrew. Well, yes, 
but the Old Testament was translated from Hebrew to Greek years before Jesus was born. And this is known as the Septuagint. So the word that the translators used in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, is the same word that the writer of Hebrews used in Hebrews 13, 6, when he referred to God as a helper. God is our helper, not our slave. So the key takeaway for wives, according to Ephesians 5, is that you are a co-equal with your husband, but your role is to paint a picture. As you submit to your husband, helping him fulfill his God-given responsibility, you paint a picture of the church submitting to Christ. You put yourself under your husband's authority as the church submits to Christ. And you serve as his helper, just as God serves as our helper. Now let me say this. We are sinners living in a sinful world. Because of your sin, you will struggle with submitting to your husband. In fact, your struggle to submit is a direct result of the fall in Genesis chapter 3. Take a look at verse 16. God is speaking to Eve shortly after she and Adam ate the forbidden fruit. And he tells her that her desire will be contrary to her husband's. And this isn't just Eve. This is for all women. They will struggle to submit to their husbands. In other words, what God is getting at is that you will usurp your husband's authority. And this is a direct result of the fall. Okay, now let's get into the husband's role. Take a look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 and following. The first thing you'll see is that the husband is to love his wife as or in the same way as Christ loved the church. He gave himself up for her. As Christ sacrificed himself for the church, a husband is to love his wife sacrificially. A wife is called to submit, but the husband is called to sacrifice. He's called to sacrifice himself for his wife. And this means more than just going to work and bringing home a paycheck. Husbands, your responsibility is to paint a picture of Christ to the world, to your wife, to your family, and to yourself. And that's the point that Paul is getting at in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 31. The purpose of marriage is to paint a picture of Christ in his church. As the church submits to Christ, wives submit to their husbands. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, the husband is to love his wife sacrificially. Husbands, you may get angry at your wife when she fails to submit to you. However, your failure to love your wife as Christ loved the church is a far greater infraction against God than your wife's failure to submit to you. So what does this sacrificial love look like? Am I supposed to die for my wife? Well, maybe. Protecting my wife is part of that responsibility. And I don't mean just protecting her physically. I mean protecting her reputation as well. Protecting her in every area of life. For example, when you're together with your buddies and they start bashing their wives, don't join in. Don't bash your wife in front of your friends. Several years ago, my wife was with some friends and they were talking negatively about their husbands. And my wife refused to join in. Is that because I'm such an awesome husband? Not at all. I'm just as much of a failure as the next guy. My wife was protecting me. I'm sure she had plenty to gripe about, but she chose not to join in because she was protecting me. She loved me enough to protect me. So giving yourself up for your wife can take many different forms. And something else to see is that the husband is the head of his wife. What does that mean? To be the head of his wife means the husband has authority over her. And this makes sense in light of a wife submitting to her husband. 
And this doesn't mean that he's the boss or the master of his wife. It's not like that. She's not his servant or slave. She's his helper, like God is our helper. And God's not our slave. However, if the husband is to paint a picture of Christ in his marriage, then he is his wife's servant. Look at Matthew chapter 20, verse 28. Jesus said that he did not come to be served, but to serve. God himself serves us, and Christ served and serves the church. Therefore, to be consistent with the picture of Christ and his church, husbands are to serve their wives. Now, let me offer a caution to wives at this point. Though your husband serves you, don't abuse this by demanding that he serve you. You don't want him treating you like a slave, so don't treat him like a slave. Now, let me make one more comment before we continue. It's not your responsibility to make sure your spouse fulfills his or her role. A husband can't force his wife to submit, and a wife can't force her husband to love her sacrificially. You're responsible to fulfill your role. So do what God has called you to do. You paint a picture in your marriage of Christ and his church. As a wife, you submit to your husband as the church submits to her head, the Lord Jesus Christ. You are co-equal with him, but you have a different role than him. Now, as a quick side note, let me just say that the church is not a co-equal with Christ. But concerning a husband and wife, they're co-equals. And the wife, as a co-equal, is responsible to help her husband fulfill his responsibility. And as a husband, you love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. But not only that, the full responsibility of your family falls on you as the husband. Your wife isn't partially responsible. You are the head of your wife. God has given you authority over her. And that authority is not meant to be abused. It's not for you to boss her around. You, husband, are responsible for your family. In the Garden of Eden, God gave Adam the command not to eat the forbidden fruit. We see that in Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. And after he gave that command, he created Eve from Adam. And after Adam ate the forbidden fruit, after he sinned against God, who did God look for? Adam and Eve? No, look at verse 9. He said to Adam, where are you? Why was he looking for Adam, especially since Eve was the first one to eat the forbidden fruit? He was looking for Adam because the full weight of responsibility for living in the garden fell on Adam alone. God gave him the command. He created Eve after he gave the command. Likewise, the responsibility of your family falls on you, husband, and on you alone. Your wife is your helper. However, though a husband is fully responsible for his family, again, this doesn't mean that he gets to boss his wife around. She is his co-equal who's responsible to help him fulfill his responsibility. God gave you your wife to help you. Therefore, treat her with love and respect. When you fail to love your wife, you distort a picture of Christ. You paint him in a negative light. When you boss your wife around, when you demand that she put your food on the table, when you demand that she get you something, you distort the picture of Jesus. Jesus never demanded that his disciples wash his feet. On the contrary, he washed their feet. You see this in John chapter 13. So from a review of Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 and following, 
Your marriage paints a picture. It's designed to communicate to you, your spouse, your family, and those around you of Christ and his church. But it mainly communicates to you your union with Christ. God established this purpose from the very beginning. Take a look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31. Here Paul quotes Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. We've already looked at this verse. This is the institution of marriage. But look at what Paul says in verse 32. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24 is really about Christ and his church. Where Adam and Eve became one flesh, Christ and his church are united. Now take a look at Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 5. Your baptism is proof of your union with Christ. You've been united to him in his death. And if you've been united to Christ in his death, certainly you're going to be united to him in his resurrection. Because you've been united to Christ, all things that belong to him belong to you. So in light of Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, the man and his wife become one flesh at marriage. And this is a picture of your union with Christ. God was telling you this all the way back in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, before Adam sinned. Again, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 19, verse 6, What God joined together, let no man separate. You are not to divorce your wife because God joined a man and a woman together. And it's a picture of union. Christ and his church and your union with Christ. Therefore, divorce distorts the picture of Christ and his church. It distorts the picture of your union with Christ. Would Jesus so easily divorce you? Never. On the contrary, even though you're unlovable, he loves you and he forgives you. And he would never divorce you. Marriage has a much loftier purpose than we've been taught. Perhaps divorce would be less common in the church if people realized the real purpose of marriage. God instituted marriage for several reasons, but he did so primarily to communicate union between Christ and his church. He communicates your union with Christ, and he established this from the very beginning. Will you paint this picture of Christ and his church perfectly? Of course not. We're sinners living in a sinful world. In fact, what we paint likely looks like blobs of paint on a canvas. It probably resembles nothing like Christ in his church. But this is the task to which we are called in our marriages. Now, there's one more thing I want to add here. I'm speaking mainly to husbands here. You get to experience the love of God in your marriage in a very unique way. And I don't mean that you feel his hug or anything like that. You get to experience how God loves. You get to experience the depth of his love by loving in the same way. When your wife offends you or hurts you, you get to forgive her as Christ forgives you. Now, you might say, you don't understand. What she did really hurt me. Okay, but you're missing a really big piece here. Your offense against Christ is ten times greater than your wife's offense against you. And what did Jesus do with you? He forgave. And he forgives. So when your wife offends you, or she doesn't submit, or she hurts your feelings, you forgive her. Now, I realize this isn't easy. We're sinful, and Jesus is not. In fact, God is just, and what did he do? Jesus sacrificed himself for the forgiveness of your sins. This is the level of love to which you are called to love your wife. If Christ forgives your offense, certainly you are to forgive your wife's offense. 
You love your wife when she's unlovable, just as Christ loves you when you're unlovable. This is how you experience the love of God in your marriage. You are called to love in the same way that God loves, sacrificially. That concludes this episode. If you have any questions, please email me at terry at thefoxdenjournal.com. If you enjoy The Fox Den, please leave a positive review and share this podcast with others. And if you haven't done so already, please subscribe. The Fox Den is a member of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Thanks for listening. Remember, faith comes by hearing.